Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Back in the early 70s, the discipline of vaccinology, that's the separate branch of medicine that develops vaccines, did not exist. There were too few vaccines to warrant it. Mike Levine was determined to change that. Shortly after founding that discipline, a fortuitous change in plans brought Mike to another scientist, Roy Robbins-Brown, that shared his then fringe-dwelling passions. Mike Levine, now a vaccinologist and professor at the University of Maryland, and Roy Robbins-Brown, professor, clinical microbiologist and research scientist at the University of Melbourne, discovered that they held the same controversial belief about a particular pathogen that would go on to change how disease was treated forever. Two world leaders in microbiology and immunology together in the same room. Dr. Andy Horvath unraveled their history together and the evolution of their fight against infectious diseases since 1978. Roy, what do other people say you're famous for? Teaching. (laughs) Why is that? (laughs) Well, I've been in charge of teaching of medical microbiology at the University of Melbourne since 1982. I believe I've taught over 10,000 medical students, um, which would be approximately half the doctors practicing in Melbourne today and um, well known amongst the medical profession. You're the guy in microbiology, but you're also a clinical researcher, is that right? That's correct, yes. So I have a number of research interests. Uh, My main interest is a curiosity-driven interest, which is how bacteria cause disease. Uh, It's something that's interested humanity since bacteria were, were first discovered or first shown to cause disease by Louis Pasteur and others, about 140 years ago or so. And it's still something that befuddles most people is how something so small can make us so ill. And it's uh, something that I find particularly interesting and it's been the focus of my work. But I'm also interested in the impact of infectious diseases on the community. So we do quite a lot of, have done quite a lot of work in the past on uh, looking at causes of diarrhea. So that was my main research interest, but I've also am interested in how bacteria cause pneumonia and the importance of pneumonia, meningitis and other you know, major infections. Roy, I know you've been interested in antibiotic resistance as well, the drugs that are used to combat infectious diseases. So you may be aware that um, resistance to antibiotics is one of the major health problems in the world today. And we are in the early stages of the post-antibiotic era where antibiotics won't be effective to treat infections anymore. And there's various approaches how to deal with that. And the most important approach is to educate people, including the health professionals, not to prescribe antibiotics inappropriately. But we also need alternatives to antibiotics, and that's been my interest. So there's various ways that people have approached this. One is to use the traditional way to find drugs similar to the ones we currently use or new drugs. But as a microbiologist, I see that as not a a long-term solution because bacteria are very good at evolving and adapting to new drugs and they become resistant to them. And those drugs, when they're used, select for, it's a kind of Darwinian process, survival of the fittest, the resistant bacteria are the ones that persist and the susceptible ones, the ones that are damaged by the antibiotics, they don't work any, uh, they are killed. So 
our approach is entirely different. So we work with bacteria that cause gut infections because my interest is diarrhea. And we work uh, with animal models. And one of the bacteria we work with, and many other bacteria behave the same way, is they recognize when they're in the intestine. So they have molecules that are able to sense chemicals within the intestine that are found predominantly in the intestine. In this particular case, it's bicarbonate ions. So bicarbonate is secreted into the intestine to neutralize stomach acid and to stop it burning the mucosa, the lining of the intestine. So bacteria, when they sense bicarbonate, know that they're in in the small intestine. And this tells them that they're inside the host and it's time to switch on the factors they need to survive in the host. Factors that they don't need when they're outside the host. So they're very economical. Cheeky things. So what we do is we find a way to trick them, prevent them from realizing that they're in the intestine. They don't turn on these virulence factors, the factors that allow them to survive inside the host, and therefore that they can't cause disease. And we've done this in an animal model, and it's been very, very effective. And now we're working on human pathogens, and we've got some leads that are looking very promising. You can never retire. Um, <laughs> people have told me that before. They've told me that about teaching, too. <laughs> Mike, what do people say you're famous for? I'm one of the pioneers in uh, the discipline of vaccinology. When I started in the early 70s, if you looked for that term, you'd only find a few, just a couple of uh, examples of that term even being used. Oh, is that right? So we were only really using drugs at that time to combat infectious disease, No, we? the concept of, of vaccinology as a discipline didn't exist. There were a few vaccines, uh, very few vaccines. We didn't have the technology. We didn't know the process, the paradigm of developing a vaccine. All of that was to come. If you looked uh, in what we call PubMed, a way on the uh, internet of looking through the National Library of Medicine for uh, publications that involve the word vaccinology, today you'll find thousands for uh, the past uh, year, 2018, and uh, you'll see even subgroups of structural vaccinology and neonatal vaccinology, etc. So I early on had an interest in trying to formalize this and established a academic unit called the Center for Vaccine Development in 1974 with the uh, goal of having all the components it would take to try to make uh, and eventually implement vaccines for populations where large, big pharma, major vaccine manufacturers at the time had no interest because the diseases we were targeting were ones that were only afflicting the poorest and most impoverished, and there was no market. Without a market, there's no way for a a big farmer to return their investment. So all of these things were going on. One then would be as one of the fathers of vaccinology. And the other, uh, more through the, the United States academic system, is I'm a bit of a dinosaur in that uh, I arrived at the University of Maryland in 1970, uh, actually on a short-term assignment from the U.S. Public Health Service. And um, come uh, early next year will be my 49th year. 
for uh, a U.S. Uh, academic to stay in one institution for almost a half a century is exceedingly, exceedingly uh, unusual. I'm going to take a little side tangent. For those who are not familiar with bacteria and viruses, both of them can cause diarrhea and disease. And both of you deal with both types of pathogens? Yeah, to some extent. I mean, I'm predominantly a bacteriologist, but, right. uh, but I, I'm interested in viruses because, as you say, they cause the same they, sort of disease. They both cause, can cause yeah. diarrhea. Yeah, correct. Okay. Is there anything else that you want us to know about the differences between the pathogens? Because some you can treat with vaccines, but some you can only treat with drugs. Is that right? Anything can be prevented with a vaccine. So the first concept is prevention versus treatment. Drugs are to treat someone who already has the disease to um, minimize the consequences, prevent death, prevent hospitalization, etc. But they're already having discomfort and, and complications. Vaccines aim to prevent the clinical uh, illness, and that's a very fundamental uh, difference. But vaccines can prevent bacterial infections. They can prevent viral infections that cause diarrheal illness. And there's work going on to develop vaccines against one protozoan, one parasite, that's very important in causing uh, a diarrheal illness. What's the global burden of disease when it comes to gut diseases like diarrhea? Oh, it's enormous. Um, there's something called the uh, Global Burden of Disease that's uh, published every year in, in The Lancet. And what we have seen is just in the past decade, there's actually a diminution in uh, deaths due to uh, diarrheal illness. The deaths are overwhelmingly occurring in the least developed areas of the world. One of the reasons for that is the introduction of a rotavirus vaccine. Um, turns out that although there are many, many different pathogens, germs, agents that can cause diarrhea in children in developing countries, a handful, in fact, just four, account for about half of all uh, deaths. And this was a revelation. It was from a study that Roy and I were very involved with called the Global Enteric Multicenter Study. And it raised the concept that if you could uh, develop vaccines against just four very, very tough pathogens. But if you could do that, one would be able to accelerate the improvement, the, the fall in, in mortality. And one of those vaccines is already out there. It's not one that we per se developed, but each of us played a role as, as part of the, the big development. That's the rotavirus vaccine. Australia is famous for um, pioneering uh, efforts in that vaccine. Let's talk about how you two met. Let's recap that moment when Roy met Mike. Well, maybe I could start a little bit before that. So I was working in South Africa at the time where I was born and raised and did my medical degree and my PhD and my training in pathology. And I was awarded a overseas traveling fellowship and I had a couple of places that I thought I might try. And one of them was a, a very well-known researcher in the area of dysentery and that was uh, Richard Hornick. And he was working at the University of Maryland. And I wrote him a letter, and he wrote a very favorable reply. But by the time I actually went 
by the time everything was organised to go to the University of Maryland, it turns out that uh, Dick had moved and Mike was in charge and he came to fetch us uh, from the airport very feeling very bedraggled, my wife and uh, three children aged under five. And I might let, let Mike uh, carry, take over from there because it was pretty interesting. What happened then? Well, <clears throat> my wife and I drove down to pick up Roy and his family. Uh, Roy with his wife, Gail, and three little girls it just traveled all the way from Johannesburg. And when we saw them, they were totally bedraggled and exhausted with giant suitcases. They looked like refugees. <laughs> and we got into the car. We started driving uh, to take them to uh, lodging. Uh, they lodged the first night in hotel, and then we invited them to stay with us until they could find uh, housing. And during that uh, trip in one hour, it was like I had discovered a scientific soulmate. At the time, we both had two great interests. One was something called uh, typical or classical entropathogenic E. coli. Mm -hmm. And the other was diarrheal disease among children in developing countries. Um, entropathogenic E. coli at the time, the dogma was that these organisms were not pathogens. And there were only a handful of people in the entire world who believed, looking at the same data uh, that existed, that indeed they were pathogens. The reason they were not considered pathogens is that two new uh, mechanisms of causing diarrhea had been discovered and uh, publicized greatly through a New England Journal of Medicine from Bert DuPont and De Cornick at the University of Maryland and Sam Formal at Walter Reed. And one was uh, the ability of E. coli to cause diarrhea by making a, a heat label or heat-stable entrotoxin. And that's a, a pathotype or a category of, of E. coli called entrotoxigenic E. coli. And the other was the ability of uh, another uh, category of E. coli to invade uh, intestinal cells and cause a dysentery-like uh, illness. And these entropathogenic E. coli that Roy and I thought had strong epidemiologic evidence of causing disease did not do those two things. So all of microbiology and infectious diseases concluded that EPEC, that entropathogenic E. coli, were not pathogens. We believed they had to be causing disease by a totally different mechanism. There were really only three or four people in the world and suddenly who believed that. And if you did believe that, you were considered to be a bit demented or lost. On the fringe. On yeah. the fr exactly, on the fringe. And here in this same little Volkswagen bus uh, were these two people. 50% of the people in the world who believed that these were pathogens. <laughs> and that was the beginning of uh, almost uh, four decades of... Uh, so we're instant soulmates. <laughs> And you established that these were indeed pathogens that used a different mechanism in order to cause dysentery and diarrhea in the body. In collaboration with, with other folks, uh, uh, Roy's coming to the Center for Vaccine Development was absolutely critical. We 
sought. Maybe there were different intratoxins that, that we, we hadn't uh, looked at. But over the next few years, we built up a cadre of people, uh, some in the U.K., uh, some in Melbourne, and some in Baltimore, that turned this orphan uh, non-pathogen into, for many years, the best studied at the molecular pathogenesis level uh, of any uh, diarrheal pathogen. Wow. So yeah. you turned around dominant dogma at the time. You said, no, no, it's got to be this. We think it's this. Tell me about certain pivotal points where it started to take traction in the industry that mm-hmm. this indeed was serious and we could treat it. We now understand it. Well, one was uh, a collaboration with uh, one of the few other people in the world who was Bernard Rowe. He was uh, head of uh, enteric, uh, bacterial enterics at Collendale in the UK. And he had in his collection the uh, strains that caused the epidemics that we had read about and concluded uh, this is a real clinical epidemiologic bacteriologic uh, uh, syndrome. And um, at a dinner in Washington uh, in the mid-70s, I happened to sit next to uh, Bernard Rowe, and we started talking, and he was another uh, rare individual who believed these were, were pathogens, and he agreed to provide those strains to me. And with those strains, I set up amongst uh, uh, college students in, uh, in Baltimore, at the University of Maryland and Towson State and some other set up uh, for a bunch of college students to come in and to, uh, uh, with informed consent and explanation, to help us uh, find out whether these bugs could cause diarrhea. So they had to take the bugs. They took the bugs. They came in. They had a, a nice little time. They, mm. they had to be resident on our, our research ward. They bonded. They, they had a great time. Um, but they either ingested one of three a Bernard Rose outbreak, famous outbreak uh, apex, which typically caused diarrhea in infants, or they took a normal E. coli because uh, other forms of E. coli in our intestine, all of us, very important for uh, digestion and physiology and liver uh, function, etc. cetera. Uh, anyway, um, two of these EPEC, classical EPEC, negative for the uh, heat label and a heat stable entrotoxin negative for intrainvasiveness caused unequivocal diarrhea in volunteers. Oh, no. And at the same inoculum level, the normal flora did nothing. The type of diarrhea, the uh, extent of it, it, it was unequivocal. So that was one piece. But then there were many, many other uh, steps and uh, uh, colleagues and friends c- contributed. I'll let Roy take it from there of how we built the evidence. I think the next important step was also in Bernard Rowe's laboratory where a Mexican scientist, Alejandro Cravioto, um, was doing some work with cell, cell culture. And he showed that these E. coli can stick to those cells in quite an unusual pattern. They form tiny little groups on the cells. And we hadn't, nobody had seen that people were using tissue culture for various tools in studying the how 
gastrointestinal pathogens cause disease. For example, Mike spoke about the how bacteria in, can invade the intestinal epithelium, and you can show that in a test tube. And so Alexandra was looking at that uh, type of thing, and then he saw that these actually don't invade the cells, but they stick to the cells in this unusual pattern. And then subsequently, someone showed that uh, people in the UK showed that that um, ability to stick to cells was encoded on a piece of DNA separate from the chromosome. So bacteria have a single chromosome, and then quite often they have small bits of DNA independent of that chromosome. It's sort of almost a parasitic for the bacteria, but sometimes they help the bacteria to become resistant to antibiotics, for example, or to make them better pathogens. So they've got these accessory DNAs floating around with them. Yes, and they they retained in the bacteria, especially when they can give the bacterium an advantage and being able to stick to the intestine gives them an advantage in the intestine, particularly if they stick to the lining of the small intestine because the small intestine doesn't have a lot of resident bacteria. The large intestine is jammed full of bacteria. In fact... You know, people would be aware that, you know, how many bacteria we carry with us. And about 70% of all the bacteria we carry with us are in the large intestine. So it's a, it's a total zoo there of bacteria. A maelstrom of bacteria would be a very uncomfortable place to live. But a nice, quiet place to live, actually, is the small intestine. But small intestine is like a very fast-flowing stream because the, the gut contents move very quickly through this very long small intestine. And bacteria, if bacteria want to stay there, they need to be able to hang on to those epithelial cells. So this, this plasma, this extra bit of DNA, encodes factors that allows the bacteria to stick to the intestinal cells. So that was shown, and then it was shown that they were a unique kind of um, adherence factor that was found at that time only in E. coli, but then subsequently found in other bacteria. And I might let Mike talk about because he did some seminal work in this area to show how important that plasmid was. So we had uh, assembled uh, over the next few years uh, a, a few new folks in, in Baltimore to, to work on this. I had recruited uh, uh, James Caper, Jim Caper, from uh, Stan Falco's laboratory, uh, Stanley Falco, who passed away uh, last year, uh, certainly one of the greatest, if not the greatest, bacterial enteric pathogeneticist. And uh, we were able to bring someone uh, from that, that, that background. And uh, Jim was able to isolate this uh, 60-megadalton plasmid. That's and, the accessory DNA? That's right. And uh, was able uh, to, uh, with one of his graduate students, to create a strain that was plasmid minus. And that allowed us to do some uh, very interesting uh, studies where we had sera from the challenge strain and we did a, uh, a relatively s a simple analysis by modern standards of taking the, the pre-challenge and the post-challenge a uh, few weeks later uh, sera from these volunteers who did develop diarrhea. And we made uh, protein spreads on a gel. Uh, from the, the bacteria, and we did what was called a Western blot, uh, looking to see if there were any proteins that lit up in sera from people who ingested the uh, plasmid 
plus strain, and we'd also given to some student volunteers the plasmid minus strain right. by that point. And we found this So uh, she created a protein. map of proteins, That's right. Yeah. And here is this one very dominant protein at uh, a size called 94 kilodaltons that was uh, present after infection with the proteins from the plasmid plus strain. That 94 kilodalton protein uh, later came to be called intamin, a uh, very, very important protein. And some out of this came some diagnostic tools, also a collaboration with a uh, investigator named Harley Moon, uh, who was a veterinarian who worked with piglets. Um, with uh, intestinal loops and animals, it was possible to give... Uh, uh, put into the loops uh, these EPEC strains, and then using histopathology, uh, Roy is a trained histopathologist and uh, could really appreciate what, what was done, a very unusual type of attachment uh, was seen. And uh, that was, for a while, pathognomonic of, of these uh, E. coli. Then uh, later, uh, Jim, in Jim Caper's lab, they identified a chromosomal locus called the Lee, and that that locus uh, produced a lot of different uh, proteins that led to uh, this uh, type of uh, unusual uh, intestinal uh, attachment. So together, and with your extended teams and collaborators, you identified what's happening at the molecular level, the genetic level, the protein level, and this, of course, then rippled into new ways of diagnosis, possible treatments. So you witnessed enormous change, or rather instigated oh, yeah. enormous change in the industry. So, Roy, your lectures must have changed from year to year. <laughs> no, very how much did, so. How did that work? But I might, I might just, before we talk about that, I might just Add talk a about... Yeah, sure. because there was a really interesting thing regarding this... Uh, 94 kilodalton protein that Mike referred to, is as Mike mentioned, when the plasmid was there, volunteers made antibodies to it. And when the plasmid wasn't there, they didn't. And then later we showed that the when the bacteria carried the plasmid, they made this protein. And when they didn't carry the plasmid, they didn't make the protein. So the obvious inference was that the pl protein, the genes for the protein, are on the plasmid. I mean, that's what you would think. And we looked really hard. That was, in fact, I went and did a sabbatical <laughs> with Mike in 1986. And one of my things I was doing there was trying to find the genes that encoded this really interesting and import, obviously important protein. And no matter how hard I looked, I couldn't find it. And the answer subsequently was uncovered in Jim Caper's lab, with, you know, who worked with Mike is that, in fact, the, the genes for intamin, that protein, are actually on the chromosome within that Lee that Mike mentioned. But the reason the plasmid was important is the plasmid regulated the production. And I was talking earlier about regulation and switching on things that are needed inside the host. The control was in the plasmid. And so when the plasmid wasn't there, it didn't get turned on. <laughs> So the regulation of the genes was outsourced to this plasma. Isn't that remarkable? Mm -hmm. Isn't that is yeah. remarkable? Do you know, this is like a detective novel, finding out 
who's the accomplice, which was the plasmid regulator, who's the sort of culprit, which is that um, Lee chromosome yeah. protein, and this is an extraordinary detective mission. I think I need to turn this into a crime podcast, actually. I'm going to re-edit this to be like a crime scene of dysentery and diarrhoea and then get to the culprits, which are molecular. One, one other thing uh, on this, uh, that when we work in the laboratory trying to get an EPEC strain to shed this EAF plasma mm. is was almost impossible. Oh, it wouldn't the, separate with it. <laughs> no, a hammer and chisel. And yet, when we did another volunteer study um, and now had the tools to look at uh, the putative EPEC strains coming out, one half of the E. coli colonies that come out of a human being have spun, have lost the plasmid. This also was kind of a harbinger of the importance of the microbiome, etc. This was amazing to us, and we had no idea how that could be happening because we had a graduate student, uh, Mary Baldini, who had tried for one year, tried everything known at the time to get uh, uh, that plasmid out. Finally, she did, but uh, volunteers did it in one passage. <laughs> <laughs> How extraordinary. This is why clinical and lab-based research works well together. Exactly. And that's a perfect example of trying to do it in the lab, but in actual fact, the clinical yeah. studies were doing it for you. That's extraordinary. Okay, back to the question, Roy. Roy, how did your lectures change over the well, decades? you know, when you've been in an area like medical microbiology, as long as I have, you go through periods which you realise are revolutionary periods. And I started doing research around the time of the recombinant DNA revolution when you can start manipulating genes. And we used to use this kind of modern genetics before that, when people did bacterial genetics, it was very laborious. It was very hard to work out what was going on. Recombinant DNA made that much easier. Now, subsequently, we're now in a, yet another revolutionary phase of microbiology, which is whole genome sequencing, where we can learn the genome of a, all the genes in a bacterium within a few hours. Something would have, you know, when they first did it, it took uh, many, many, many months and now it's becoming a clinical diagnostic tool and certainly a very important public health tool for tracing epidemics within hospitals, outside hospitals, and so on. And obviously our teaching has to reflect that, and so we, be, we teach diagnostic microbiology now totally differently from the way we did. And I can tell, I've got a little, tell you a funny little story about that because in the 1990s I set an exam question for science students but doing a subject on medical microbiology, which was how you might identify a new variety of E. coli um, that showed it was different from the current ones, but you know, in the same way it looked at intrapathogenic E. coli and showed it was different from intratoxigenic E. coli and intrainvasive E. coli. And <clears throat> I had a question phrased around that, and the student said, sequence the genome. And at the first genome had just been sequenced around that time, it was Haemophilus influenzae. And I said, you know, big red cross that out, don't be ridiculous and that. And of course, now that's the right answer. The <laughs> 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 so student was very prescient. <laughs> I need to get that paper back and apologise. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, consider this podcast uh, the global apology to those okay. students. <laughs> Gosh. Um, what inspired you both to 
get into this area? What were triggers as undergraduates or even as school students that said, wow, this invisible world of microbiology and immunology is fascinating. I've got to go down that path. Uh, I got into it uh, somewhat by accident. I I was always interested in uh, tropical pediatrics, you could call it. Now the term global health and global pediatrics very common, but in the 1960s when I was a medical student, that was pretty unheard of. very difficult to have experiences, but I was able in one way or another to secure working in places for several months at a time as a medical student. The last one I did was at the Jinnah Children's Hospital in Karachi, Pakistan, the last three months of medical school before I started a pediatric uh, residency, and I worked on a uh, a diarrheal research project, the clinical one. What impressed me was that despite having the best clinical microbiology laboratory in uh, Pakistan at the time, supported by a collaboration with a U.S. Uh, medical school in Indiana, the Jinnah Children's Hospital could only look for a handful of bacterial pathogens. Just, And it was all a black box. Here were these sick kids, many of whom died, many of whom became uh, malnourished. We had no idea what the etiologies were. And so it did stimulate me to become interested. On my way back home, I spent a week in what, at the time, this is 1967, what was called East Pakistan, now Bangladesh. And I visited the Color Research Laboratory. And there I saw research going on at every level, clinical, physiologic, immunologic, bacteriologic, in a uh, developing country situation, attempting to use as much as they could uh, state-of-the-art methodologies that they could get to that place. And that had a a very strong influence on me uh, that would come later to lead to our Center for Vaccine Development establishing a few sister units, uh, one in West Africa, for example, that is now uh, a very well-recognized, highlighted center of excellence in a country that's, by UN standards, the sixth or seventh least developed in the world and uh, an unusual anomaly. But I, I would trace my interest all the way back to 1967 for that. Roy? And mine was even more by accident. Uh, so at school, I was interested in science, but I went to a boys' school and we didn't do biology at all. So, uh, learned about physics and chemistry because uh, girls did biology. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's Nin- changed. 1960s. <laughs> and then um, I finished high school, age 17. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but my, my dad had died when I was 12, but uh, he was a doctor and I was an only child and people assumed I should do medicine. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I thought, well, I'll do medicine because it gives me another six or seven years to think about it. <laughs> And I did that, and I really enjoyed the part of medicine where you worked in the laboratory and you try to work things out and looking down a microscope and all that stuff that almost all the other students hated, so it's like pretty unusual. But I finished my medical training, and uh, at the first opportunity, I applied for a job in laboratory medicine with the idea of becoming a pathologist. 
and they had an opening for a trainee in microbiology. So it wasn't something that had particularly interested me as a medical student, although I did quite well in the exams, but I, as I say, I didn't have a far preferred anatomical pathology. But I was quite happy because in those days people became what were called general pathologists. You'd rotate through the various subdisciplines of pathology. So, you know, it's a circle you make and start anywhere and you end up in the same, come back and then it's all over. So that was the intent. And I found that I really enjoyed microbiology. I found it challenging and interesting. And while I was in this training period, the College of Pathologists actually changed the rules and they decided general pathologists weren't a good idea anymore because the knowledge in pathology was growing so much that you should, no one person can do all of pathology properly. So they said, what we're going to do is limit you to do two. And I said, oh, okay, well, that's fine. I'll go and do hematology. And I really enjoyed hematology. I found it really interesting. That's and I got the study in, of blood. Yes. And I got, and it's much easier, you know, conceptually than microbiology, which is, you know, huge. And hematology, as I used to joke, well, you know, it's sort of red cells, white cells, platelets with, you know, bits of cells that help your blood clot. And basically that's it. If you know that, you know everything. So it's not too much. (laughs) It's easy to get your head around. (laughs) And I did that for 18 months and I decided I was going to become a hematologist. And I'd already had a PhD program laid out because often after you do the first part of your pathology exams, you the idea is you do some research and, you know, higher level training. But part of that is research could actually lead to a PhD. So you could do formal research. So you do PhD part-time and studying pathology part-time. So that's what I'd had that all planned. I was going to do that. And uh, my boss, who was going to be my PhD supervisor, got a promotion. And he said, I'm not able to supervise you anymore. And I was somewhat impetuous. I said I was an only child. I like to get my own way. <laughs> and so I... In 30 seconds, I decided I'm not going to stay here. They don't want me. I'm going somewhere else. Microbiology was quite fun. I'll go back there and see if my boss there would have me. And I said, okay, I've decided I want to specialize in microbiology. And would you supervise my PhD? And he said, that's fine. You've got to come up with a new PhD program because this <laughs> one's. So I was going to be an immunohematologist, which I think is quite a sexy area. <laughs> well, it, w- it works for me. <laughs> But it turned out I was became a, a medical microbiologist, and then you know one thing led to another. My that particular boss was interested in researching causes of diarrhoea in Black African children, which was a major cause of death in South Africa at the time. And it was the time when uh, rotavirus had just been discovered in Melbourne, when Enterotoxigenic E. coli had just been discovered in the UK, and been you know much work done on it in the United States, including. At you know the area at the, at the University of Maryland in Baltimore, and I thought, well, you know, these are the really important um, areas to look at and the important pathogens to find. And um, we went and looked for them, and instead we found intrapathogenic E. coli, and that's when I became a convert. Thank goodness for us. I've got a question for you both, and that is humans versus microbes. Are we winning the battle thanks to this work that's gone on since the 70s? Well, since Pasteur. Uh, I would say from the narrow perspective of vaccines, yes, in many ways, in terms of our ability to apply the advent of biotechnology, all these new methodologies, uh, we can create almost 
a vaccine against almost any pathogen that comes, with a few exceptions, given the right resources and, and interest resources, including finances. And we've had some marvelous successes, including some of the early vaccines. What we are facing now is the flip side of the success of vaccines. So take measles as an example. Um, people forget what a ravishing disease measles was for children, even in the industrialized countries, with one out of every uh, 700 dying and 10% going into hospital and all kinds of adverse reactions. Um, some children developing encephalitis, about one out of 1,000. Measles vaccine gets introduced, and we see within a couple of years a 90% drop in the burden, the number of cases per, per year. And over a generation then, uh, parents, who every one of whom recognized had measles themselves, next generation, measles is as exotic as smallpox and uh, or Ebola, and we have this problem of uh, anti-vaccine and vaccine hesitancy with oh, parents yes. uh, going on the internet, doing their research, and coming upon some websites that look very official and knowledgeable that take facts and weave them into a fabric uh, that gives a very wrong conclusion. And so we see young parents deciding uh, this is not a problem anymore. Why should I have my child receive vaccine when there's one in a, a million? Uh... Anyway, I see that as a huge problem. And uh, we must battle this problem because vaccines that apply the best technology uh, that sit on a shelf don't do any, any good for, for anyone. So I don't see it quite in the same way that uh, you see it. I don't think, you know, it's uh, humans versus bacteria. So, you know, bacteria on the earth a few billion years before us. True. And they'll be here billions of years after us. And they evolve faster than us. And they evolve very much faster than us. The generation of an E. coli in the laboratory at any rate is about 20 to 30 minutes. Which is why the antibiotic resistance crash that we're facing is terrifying. Exactly. And so, so that's part of them winning the battle. And that's why we need a, a new type of approach. And there's all different types of approaches, as I indicated, and there is no one clear way, but a good start is education and you know, using antibiotics more appropriately. And in fact, the improvements in diagnosis allow us to use antibiotics more appropriately because doctors were often treating blind because one of the problems is getting bacteria to grow. It always, even if they grow really fast, they do have short generations, but it still takes a day or two to get a result from the laboratory to say it's susceptible to this antibiotic, it's resistant to that antibiotic. So what doctors would do, and perfectly reasonably for serious illness, is they treat patients with one or more antibiotics that have a very broad spectrum, so what we'd call shotgun treatment, hoping to hit something. Whereas instead of shotguns, we'd like to use rifle bullets to target something very specific. But you can't do that until now. Because through the, the latest molecular revolution in, in microbiology, whole genome sequencing, amplifying genes by PCR, you can detect resistance very, very much faster and then target 
the treatment much more quickly. And it's actually already showing signs of improvement that doctors are prescribing more appropriately using rifle bullets rather than shotgun. And that will help us deal with resistance. So we can get on top of antibiotic resistance. It's not that's, a... that's one strategy, yeah. obviously, and there's lots of other complementary strategies, finding new antibiotics sure. and educating the public. But I think you know, the public, certainly within Australia, are getting much more better educated. So one difference I've noticed, when I came to Australia, I gave lectures on antibiotics, and I was quite interested in antibiotic usage. And in 1982, I went and looked at the, uh, the PBS, uh, the uh, Pharmaceutical Benefit Scheme, data on drug usage. And I think in the top 10 drugs prescribed in Australia, three were antibiotics. And now in the top 20, I think only one's an antibiotic. We're so it's, there. it's really, so people are using antibiotics far less. Well, I think what might also reflect they're using other drugs much more, anti-inflammatories and so on. Yep. <laughs> What's your advice to young researchers if they feel they're up against dominant dogma, but they've got a real hunch and some evidence that's looking like there's an alternate way of exploring nature? Well, I would draw upon this uh, extraordinary uh, experience and and friendship that Roy and I have had and our families (laughs) over almost 40 years when we started being uh, loners, believing that intrapathogenic E. coli really were pathogens. And all our mentors and uh, the most powerful and respected individuals in the area of bacterial infections thought that we were a bit loony, um, we believed, uh, we uh, got uh, a degree of affirmation from uh, from each other, we stuck with it, and within a decade we were able to see many groups across the world working on the same thing, unequivocally recognizing this is a pathogen. And within uh, some years thereafter, there were international conferences. And with some degree of pride and satisfaction, we could know that this bug that people thought was a non-pathogen, by the doggedness of, of staying with our beliefs, we could see this become, with many people saying it was the best studied at the level of molecular pathogenesis, uh, bacterial enteric pathogen that existed. So really, effort into your ideas, almost trying to prove yourself wrong or right, is a good way to go. Yes. Stick well, with it. I totally agree with that. So, I mean, that's the way I started, as I said. I set out to show that intratoxinic E. coli and rotavirus were important causes of diarrhea. And no matter how hard I tried that, I had to accept the alternative, which was that intrapathogenic E. coli was important. And I think what, what you learned from that is you have to believe the evidence and then don't try and find explanations why that's wrong. And that's what the other people were doing as they said, oh, these are just intratoxinic E. coli and intranvasive E. coli that have lost the plasmids. And I said, they're not. Clearly, they're not because they're not the same kind of E. coli. And, we, you know, there were a lot of ways of looking at subgroups of E. coli in those days that you could say, well, they're not the same. Believe the evidence. Believe the evidence. It's there in front of you. This story kind of mimics a little bit the Helicobacter pylori story as well, in the sense that I remember studying physiology and there were three theories to why we had stomach ulcers. One was overactivity of um, acid, and I think one was overactivity or sensitivity stress to it, or stress. 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 Mm-hmm. And then there was this fringe theory that mm-hmm. it was a bacterial yeah. infection. Of course, by the time I graduated, mm-hmm. um, 
it was no longer the fringe theory. So, um, well, so that was another. That's a revolution in medicine that uh, that you know we we witnessed, which was ulcers, peptic ulcers, gastric and duodenal ulcers were caused by stress. It was a psychosomatic disease that you treated with surgery. And then it became an infectious disease that you treated with antibiotics. There's still a lot of work to be done. Would that be true? Yes, no doubt. Okay, young scientist, onto it. I feel like that on behalf of planet Earth, I need to thank you two for being disease heroes and for propelling an amazing spectrum of research that has led to diagnosis and treatment with you and your colleagues, an extended family of microbiologists and immunologists. We're getting there. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. And thank you, Roy. Thank you very much. Thank you so much to Professor Mike Levine, pioneer of vaccinology at the University of Maryland, and to Professor Roy Robbins-Brown, clinical microbiologist and research scientist at the University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, stories of inspiration and insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on November 19, 2018. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Dr Andy Horvath and Sylvie Van Wall. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2018, the University of Melbourne. Don't forget to drop us a review on iTunes and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.